everyone, and welcome to the Riffing on Realness podcast. I'm Carla Royal, a mindset and performance coach working with high-achieving entrepreneurs, and with me is Juliette Fay, a poet and three principles facilitator. If you are wrestling with how to be real in the midst of rampant superficiality, and it's causing you to overthink, be too guarded, and not live your potential, then you're in the right place. In this podcast, Juliet and I explore how dropping the masks, being real and vulnerable, can help us connect, adapt, and find a richness of experience amid the chaos. We're glad you're here, and we invite you to tune in, slow down, and listen for your own wisdom. Good morning, Juliet. Good morning, Carla. So, uh, Juliet uh, and I were, were deciding what to talk about today, and we decided to talk about my boat that sank last week. <laughs> so, I had this little boat. It's an old little 15-foot boat that I just love to take out into the sound here in Florida. Um, it's like, it's just my favorite thing to do in the world is to be out on this little boat. You know, she's not beautiful. She's old, but she's faithful and, and sure and, and kind of irreplaceable in a way. And she's named after my mother, Frida. And I just love this little boat so much. I'm so grateful for this little boat. I decided um, about three weeks ago to rent a little slip at the Dunedin Marina and keep her there because it just is so much easier than hauling her in and out every time. And there's just a lot of work to do with that. So I rented this slip, Juliet. And a week and a half later, she sank in that slip. Mm. So I got the call last Monday that my little boat had sunk. And it wasn't my fault, which I was, you know, relieved at because you know how the, the ego is just like, oh my God, it's your fault. You did something wrong. And and I verified that it wasn't my fault. The, the fact was it was a fa- the fault of the marina. They put me in a bad slip and there, there wasn't um, the pilings needed to tie her off correctly for the tides. It's the problem is the tides that come up and down and she uh, ended up getting caught underneath the, the dock and flipping. And um, I was pretty devastated when I got that call last week, really pretty devastated. (laughs) I just felt horrible. What was beautiful was that uh, I had to speak to about eight different people that day, and everybody was so calm and so kind and supportive and just helped me sort of navigate the insurance and, and everything. And the kindness of the people around me, just every everyone I spoke to who was kind, my nervous system just relaxed a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And the story of the Chinese farmer, that parable came to my mind. Have you heard it, Juliet? I have. I love that story. I'd love you to tell it as well. Well, the story is that this, and I don't, I'm not sure I get, we'll get every bit of it just right so people can go look it up. But the story is that there's this Chinese farmer and he has this prized mare, this horse. She's, she's, you know, just the prize of this farm. And one day she breaks out and runs off and all the villagers come to the farmer and says, oh my gosh, how horrible, how horrible. And the farmer says, maybe, maybe not. 
And then some time passes and all of a sudden he sees the mayor on the horizon, like weeks pass. He sees the mayor on the horizon bringing in this prized stallion, this wild stallion. And they come trotting back together. And all of a sudden he has this prized stallion plus his prized mare. And the village people are just astounded and they come to him, oh my gosh, how fortunate, how wonderful, isn't this awesome? And the farmer says, maybe, maybe not. Sometime later, the, his son, his, young, his, his teenage son, uh, decides to try to um, break this horse, to train this horse, to tame the horse, the stallion. And so he's working with this horse, and the horse, the stallion, throws him, and he breaks his, bat, his leg terribly badly. And the villagers come and say, oh, my God, how horrible, how terrible. I can't believe this happened to you. What terrible luck. And the farmer says, <clears throat> maybe, maybe not. Some weeks later, war breaks out and the generals and everybody comes through the towns and, and, and recruits all of the boys to go fight this horrible war. And they know that these kids are going to die. Many of them are going to die. But because the son had, has such a broken leg, he can't enlist. And so the villagers come to the farmer and say, oh, my gosh, your luck is amazing. I can't believe how well this is. And, and he says, of course, maybe, maybe not. And, and that was the story that I remembered that day when my boat sunk was, you know, maybe this is a good thing. Maybe this is a bad thing. We don't really know. And as the week has gone by, what I've recognized is that um, the Frida was very old, really not in very good condition. I've learned a lot about keeping a boat in a marina. <clears throat> things I didn't know that could have been become a problem later. She didn't have the right paint on her hull to, to protect her from decay, for example. I didn't know that. You know, I would have ended up having a problem down the road. And so I'm at the point now where I'm just very comfortable with the fact that, um, you know, this is okay. And also, just to be honest with you, Juliet, it is a freaking first world problem that I even have a boat you know that what what a privilege how privileged and I am that I have a boat come on so it was it's been a really interesting roller coaster ride of a week um, to learn more about um, this maybe maybe not this non-attachment this impermanence of life um, uh, also just navigating my own nervous system and understanding my privilege. It's just been a week full of lessons and resourcefulness and resilience and the kindness of other people and so on and so forth. Yes, the Frida is gone. She's lost. They totaled her. She can't be revived. And that's sad. And I get to grieve that. I just, it just sounds like you've had a really rich, sounds a funny word to use, but a really rich experience around all of it and I love the story of the Chinese farmer and it's it's funny because um in another telling it he says we'll see maybe maybe not we'll see um, and you know for me through this whole whatever it is now 14 months or so that, that's been such a catchphrase for me um because your story really illustrates the sort of well I, I I hear sort of two bits of it there's the there's the drama 
that's always available to us. You know, even if we're just washing dishes, we could make a drama of it. We, we've talked about that on another episode. And then there's what looked like, no, but this is a real problem. And then it then there are problems we imagine and problems we read about on the news that are happening elsewhere. So it's I'm really seeing in what you're talking about that the the capacity for drama is is always available, but maybe our appetite for it is it varies. And so I've sort of hearing when you talked about non-attachment, it, I'm sort of hearing a sense of you being in it with the twists and turns, but also being open to it, you know, with that suspending that judgment of this is a bad thing, this is a good mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. You you got to experience a range of things. Some of were, were more pleasant, some were less pleasant, I'm sure. But the movement is what I could really hear in your mm-hmm. story. That, mm-hmm. And it's not sort of, oh, everybody lived happily ever after. I, I, I heard you sort of leave off at also maybe, maybe not, we'll see. And that... Mm-hmm that awareness that you don't know you know two weeks time two months time two years time it's become really apparent to me that even how we remember things is constantly changing Mm -hmm. Um, even the the really massive things whether we think they're joyful things or terrible things my experience of of memory is that um, it's not fixed it's not fixed and that's wonderful you know that's that's kind of gets me curious too so anything I feel very (laughs) indignant or righteous or um or even even a sense of certainty this is definitely this way or should be that way um it looks less true that it could ever be that fixed Mm -hmm, mm-hmm mm-hmm yeah, I mean, I, I love what you said about memory. I mean, that that is definitely my experience, you know, I, I think especially around how I experienced my childhood and my dysfunctional family and how differently now at 60 year old, at 60 years old, I view even what happened to me and who my family, my parents were, for example. You know, I see them in a completely different light now. I wish I could, I wish I could. I, I did sort of get that opportunity with my dad, not to say it, not to say it out loud, but 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 to be in a different way with him because of what I understood. And I but I so wish I could sit down with my mother and say, oh, my gosh, mama, I get it, man. I get where you were coming from in a way that I couldn't when I was growing up. And I wish I had had a little more grace toward you and your struggle. Uh, because I see things so very, very differently now. So it's really, yes, it's really, really interesting. And we know from research that our that our memories are not accurate. They're not. They're not accurate. They're our perception of what happened. I remember sitting down with my sister when my after my dad died, and we were talking to the the person who was going to do the service, and she was asking us for memories. And I said, "Well, I remember when I was three that I named our dog Banana." And all my life, now here I am, that point, you know, 50-something, here I am, and in my mind, all my life, I had, I had named Banana, my dog, <laughs> three years old. And my sister looked at me, she's three years older, she said, you didn't name Banana, I named Banana. 
And I said, I'm not, I, I don't think you're, I think that's wrong. And she said, oh no. And here's how I know. She said, I was reading a book about, so she explained to me how she could kind of in a way verify that she had actually, and I have to say in that moment, it was a little bit disconcerting, kind of the, you know, letting go of the illusion of something I had believed for decades. And I know it's a small thing, but somehow it undid a little something in me that my my memories are not accurate. My my perception of the world is actually not accurate. Mm-hmm. And it, it was a little bit of an unraveling of something in me. Because if this could be true, what else could be true? <laughs> yeah. It it is fascinating, isn't it? I remember sort of one time I I I was thinking about when you try and remember your life. You know, if you were to sit down and either try and speak it or write it down, your life, how it it is inevitably just made up of highlights and lowlights. You you none of us can go back and moment by moment, well, not that I'm aware of, you know, remember and relive our experience from birth onwards. And so, like you say, it, it's not only that our memories can shift and we can, if you like, misremember things that other people remember differently. But then you start to realise there's no objective truth of a life that you can actually map in the way that you could map the course of a ship. Mm -hmm. And so if we're like that with our own stories and lives, how on earth do we think we can know anybody else? (laughs) Because it's even more going to be just highlights and lowlights that we, we're the editor. So we pick out the ones that we think are significant. And how in any way does that really capture the essence and heart of somebody else? Yeah. It's kind of fascinating, isn't it? And yet we, we kind of run about as if, you know, I got quite interested in genealogy last year and was looking into my family history And there's that desire to sort of piece it together and who were they and where were they? And we want these facts to try to build some something, some kind of picture. But it's um, it's necessarily it's not even just a snapshot. It's it feels very random and movable. Mm Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I think. You know, we might be able to title this this episode something about impermanence, because What's interesting as you're talking is like even our memories are impermanent. You know, even they shift and morph and change over time. You know, it's all impermanent. I was on the phone with a client right before we hopped on and he has two um, two young girls and he's in lockdown. He lives in Canada and he's they're back on lockdown again uh, from the pandemic. And he um, he said that, you know, what happens is he has client calls and sometimes one of the girls will just barge in and he says it's really hard because, you know, these clients have paid, you know, tens of thousands, so much money for these calls. And then my kid, my kid runs in and it's a little bit, you know, disconcerting. And I said, you know, what's beautiful about this is that it could be that you model something to your clients you model the impermanence of, of life. You model the interruptions of life. You model the reality of being human in an impermanent, um, 
world, life full of interruptions. But what happens is through social media, you know, we put forth this perfect little world, this perfect little um, um, person, this perfectly quaffed person, you know, before you, and you're not even human anymore. And it's toxic. And I think it's killing us. And so what if you could model for them how to be how to how to surf the world how to surf the wave of this interruption and make it a part of a part of your teaching a part of your life a part of your leadership um that they know that they too get to be human you know you model being a real vulnerable human being who has who has children who interrupt from time to time or other things that interrupt or technology going wrong surfing that not apologizing for it not making it wrong or a problem, but man, this is part of life, man. You get to be human. You get to show up. There are, there are always interruptions. That is a part of life. That's not something to try to get away from. It's something to try to learn how to surf and be more at ease with and let other people know it's fine. It's fine. It's just fine. I love, I love that. And like you say that, that, you know, there's a human there that he's caring for, who's kind of come into the middle of a, of a call. And as you say, it's, it's that same thing back to you with your boat. If you declared this a disaster and a problem and stayed with that viewpoint, then everything to do with it would have been trying to mitigate the disaster and the problem and, your experience of it, I think, would have been quite different. Not to say it didn't feel like that initially, but mm-hmm. and that I, I think, yeah, I love what you're pointing to with that. You know, an interruption. It's like that thing about you know, you probably heard a weed is just a plant in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. Is a definition of a weed, mm-hmm. and I've always loved that because you know, some things that are called weeds, like dandelions, some people eat them. They love you know, love them as salad or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so in that example you gave, if the uh, little girl running into the Zoom call, why call it an interruption? Perhaps it's a gift. As yeah. you said, not just for the modelling, it could be a gift for both or either of the people on the call in ways that you, back to your Chinese farmer, ways that you don't necessarily know beforehand. Yeah. But yeah. that openness. I, I want to come in as well, and you were saying about the you know putting forward this this front and you can hear the control involved when when we talk about that the that's necessary but also I have a sense that you know almost everybody knows at some level that it's a bit ridiculous that um we've kind of all agreed that that's what we need to do and yet we all know it's sort of pointless because you can't control everything because interruptions do happen and I'm really curious about you know, well, can we just drop it? Yeah. Well, I would disagree with you that everybody knows it's it's not real because I, I mean, I think on some level maybe so, mm-hmm. but I think there are a, a ton of people who really do still believe they can just control everything if they have enough money, if they have enough success, if they have enough strength, if they have enough, which is why I think in part people are so desperate for those things is because they think if they have all of that, they'll be able to control their lives. They'll be able to keep, they'll be able to keep disaster at bay, you know, and of course we know, I mean, what was it a week or 
little over a week ago, those terrible storms, I don't know where all they went, but the tornadoes ripped through um, a community uh, just just a little ways away from where I used to live before I moved to Florida. And those tornadoes came through um, very wealthy, a very wealthy neighborhood and just leveled the homes, nothing salvageable. Mm-hmm. nothing anyone could do about it, how much ever money they had or success or power or strength they had. And um, and I think for, for people who don't understand this idea of what we're talking about, this impermanence, um, the devastation would be overwhelming for them. It would be bad enough if they did know, understand about impermanence and that we really have very little control over our lives, really far less than we think that we do. Um, so yes, I think the more we could drop the illusion of permanence, the illusion of control, um, the healthier and happier we'd be, the more flow we would experience in our lives. Um, you know, what happened in my little teeny tiny uh, first world problem privileged boat sinking, um, as I allowed those feelings to just sort of move through me throughout the day, by the end of the day, I was literally laughing about it, genuinely laughing about it. Um, now, I had moments later in the week where I didn't laugh. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of an ebb and flow and a, and a bit of a roller coaster. But, um, but when we can sort of drop the illusion of, of, of permanence and control, it's easier to navigate these things. So one of the reasons why we started this, this podcast, uh, and one of the things I know I teach to my clients, and I believe you teach to your people, is um, showing up more authentically and vulnerably um, is a gift to those around us. You know, that's why we do this, this, this podcast is we want people to know how toxic it is to always be pretending, to always be living behind these perfectly quaffed images, these magazine smiles. We want people to know how damaging that is and what a burden that is and that there's so much freedom when we can just show up as who we are, human, fragile, brilliant, resilient, um, uh, uh, easily pushed over, brilliant comebacks. I mean, the phoenix, I mean, all of that is who we are. All of that is who we are. And it's good. Yeah, I love, I was hearing the the messiness, you know, which we often, mm-hmm. you often talk about, you know, the sort of messiness. And it, it's so funny, isn't it? Because I think, um, you know, I'm definitely a recovering control freak. So I, I, I have it. I've done that. I've done a lot of time on con- trying to control things. And it's so interesting to sort of notice how, you know, I, I think when I was saying that most of us know really deep down that things are impermanent, I, I don't know if you find this as well with your your work, that you can be really caught up in trying to control things. And at the same time, you know you're not going to live forever. You know that the house you've bought, you might want it to be your forever home, but you know really logically that you can't make that so. You can try, and you you probably know that in your work, if you're running a business or if you're employed, the the sort of fortunes of your your company or your workplace are not in your control. 
And so we we sort of I, I do think that deep down when people pause, it's self-evident, you know, anything you've ever tried to hang on to is a boat or a, a pet or a partner. Um, ultimately, in, in the final analysis, you will lose everything you have, either through death or something else. And so we know that at one level, yes. but we often live as if it's not true, which is what you're pointing at. And it's really interesting to me that the, you know, I wonder, I'm wondering if the that desire to control it sort of fulfills a lot of functions. I mean, for one thing, it takes up a huge amount of time and energy. And, and if you are someone who, you know, correlates feeling like you're working hard with doing well or being successful, then you can see there's a kind of logic that if you're working to control things, oh, well, I'm working hard, that must be good. You know, I win some, I lose some, but at least I'm trying. And, it, and I think there's an element of habit we we can get into that being our response to the world is sort of oh no something's going wrong quick you know try and control and then the question comes up for me is sort of well what would be there if we weren't trying to control everything and that's I'd love to explore that or hear you know hear from you where where you go where that takes you yeah yeah I mean I think that this this desperate need we have to control is just a part of our brain function it just feels like we're doing something to protect ourselves just feels like we're keeping ourselves safe it's just but I do believe it's an illusion Um, what would be left that's an interesting question what comes to my mind is is how most you know you and I humans are part of nature but we've kind of forgotten that largely I think and when I look at all of the rest of nature I don't feel like they have that. I feel like they just, you know, when I watch the birds, we've talked about this in other podcast episodes. When we watch the birds, they wake up in the morning and they sing their little songs and um, to greet the day. That's my imagination. Who knows why they do it, but they do it. And then they go off in search of food and water or they go off in search of a mate, or they go off in search of um, of 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 bedding for their for their babies. They don't have a big story about it. They don't have a big concern about the next day. They're living very much in the present moment. They're trusting that life is living them. They're trusting how life works, and so they go look for food. And if there's a drought. You know, they may have a very hard time finding food, but they don't get caught up in their stories of, oh, my God, how long is this this drought going to last? Oh, my God, I'm going to die. Oh, my God, my children are going to die. They don't get caught up in all these stories about it. They just go about the business of looking for food or resting or sleeping or singing and so on. And I think that there's a lot more, and it's not to say, as we've said before, Juliet, it's not to say that the the drought may last long enough that they die, but they don't have some big existential meaning about that. As far as I can tell, they -hmm. just go about their day and do what they can do. And they don't have this story that God or the universe or life is against them. They just, this is just how life is. 
Yeah, and what a way to live. And it's funny you're talking about the birds because it's quite cold at the moment here in Wales. We had ice on the windscreen in the last couple of mornings and oh. I was <laughs> I was out in um, the yard fairly early um, one morning and there were two blackbirds. I've got trees behind the house and they were sitting on the branch and they were huddled right up next to each other with all their feathers puffed up. And I, I sort of saw them and I thought, oh, you know, how sweet. They're cuddling up, you know, because it's cold. And while I was drifting off with a story, you know, about how lovely this was, you know, maybe the temperature rose a degree or two because one of them just kind of shuffled along the branch as if like, OK, I've had enough of that now. <laughs> and, and went off, just as you're saying, you know, into the next bit of, mm-hmm. of, of his or her day. And what's interesting to me is why you know why do we do we think we can live like that not like the blackbird you know but just what what I heard in what you were talking about what you saw in nature is that animals and creatures are just responding to what what's next what shows up the the instinct or urge to do this or go there or get this and it's not because they have some entitlement to I'm going to survive, doesn't matter what I do. Like you said, you know, hard winter, some will be lost. But as humans, it's it's interesting to begin to notice what we're doing to stop us living in that way, just more responsive to what shows up more in the present and and I know for me, for for the longest time, I mean, it, that's just looked like that's kind of the way it is. Um, even when I know when I used to notice, I would get into sort of trying to control things. It didn't always look like I had much choice. But it it's fascinating to me to ask, well, you know, could we live that way? And and if so, what's getting in the way, really, mm-hmm. when you get down to it? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Just my initial thoughts are that one is we don't really see or trust our own resilience. You know, I mean, we're here because the human race is is incredibly resilient. You know, we are built to survive and thrive. But we forget that, I think, in one, one part. I think we also, so we don't trust ourselves. And I think we also don't trust that there's this natural order. Um, some people might call it God. Some people, you know, I don't know what to call it, but there's an, I don't know what to call it, but there's, there's a, a life force living through all of us that is living us. We don't trust that. And I think then too, is this whole um, part of the, the brain again about uh, uh, being belonging, being a part of our tribe. And if we don't belong, if we get kicked out of our tribe, uh, we die, that old primitive belief that we die. And so I think there are all these expectations around us about how we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to live from this, the cultural norms that, keep, that can keep us locked in because we're too afraid of bucking the system for fear that we'll get kicked out of our tribe and die. Those are the three things that sort of come just off automatically off my mind. I'm sure there's there's more. So I think there's a lot of um, 
it takes a lot of courage to sort of, it's one of the things with my clients, my entrepreneurial clients who are running in this big, fast, fast, big game that they're playing in the entrepreneurial internet marketing world um, who have this fear about not, I just got off the phone with a client yesterday who's like, I'm not running it, I'm not, I'm not the leader of this pack right now and it's scaring me. And, um, you know, we had to talk through that and he came to a place of real comfort and acceptance about that and that he's playing a longer game that looks a little bit different. Uh, So he's running in the middle of the pack right now. And we talked about how that's okay, And in fact, maybe healthier and maybe long term um, will get him somewhere that those people won't be able to get to because they burn themselves out. Uh, But he's feeling the pressure of of the, the tribe, you know, of bucking the system a bit. So it takes a lot of courage to look at that and kind of uh, kind of um, step out of that. Yeah, and it's it's interesting when you said that about that we have that tendency to to measure not just how we're doing without outer things like money or uh, business success, but to measure our experience, and I suppose I mean our inner experience by some made up yardstick you know should I be feeling this should I be responding this way shouldn't I be doing something different what are my peers doing what are my people I admire doing what are my competitors doing and it's what you said a moment ago about this not trusting the sort of deeper wisdom whatever you want to call it Mm -hmm. and that expression you know plow your own furrow it really comes to mind um, because I can see in my own life I've I've tended to not be going with the <laughs> with the mainstream almost all my life and I've at times I felt a certain pride in that you know I I enjoyed being unconventional but other times I felt um, insecure about it yeah. that um, maybe what I'm doing or what I'm feeling or what I'm seeing is not chiming with what I think someone like me should be seeing, doing or feeling. And there's there's a great freedom in, you know, I think most listeners will relate to, you know, if you've had some odd experience and you talk to a friend and they come in and sort of say, oh, yeah, I've heard about that. There's an immediate sort of re- feeling of reassurance. Oh, good. I'm not crazy or weird or, <laughs> you know, they, someone else has had this. But really, you, you start wondering, well, do we do we need that? Do we do we have to have someone say it's it's OK to feel, be, do or see things that others aren't? Because to me, that's sort of being able to experience whatever you experience. It's back to your Chinese farmer story, really, isn't it? If it if it'd been persuaded by the neighbor's reactions that you, on every twist and turn, he would have been flung about between hope and despair, hope and despair. But so very often when you talk to people, whether they've had an extraordinary life or they've had an ordinary life, although they're, they're just labels, most people, when you when you ask them and they get a bit quiet, will notice the times in their lives when they've done things because they've just had an instinct or they've just had a nudge and oftentimes they haven't really had any clue where where that would go or how it would turn out. But they've just had that quiet knowing that doesn't need anyone else to go, yeah, yeah, that's that's good, that's bad, <laughs> that's weird, that's not. 
and they move towards it. Mm-hmm. And, and and I've circled around a bit, but I think what we're sort of pointing at, it, they're all connected. That that coming into more um, appreciation, I suppose, of, of the quieter, deeper. Um, not really voice, but just nudges and knowings. We already know that that works for us. And then it's like going back to what takes us out of that. It's almost like we get kind of, we get drawn and caught into either our own busy mind or the busyness out there in the world. And like your client, then suddenly I'm not going fast enough or I'm not, you know, we, and, and I don't know whether the listeners would, you know, when you just pause and think about that, it feels different. It feels urgent and, and a bit racy to me. Yeah. Yeah, that could, in, a, in and of itself, when it feels that racy, could be a bit of an alarm clock to wake us up that we're getting caught up in something that's not real or mm-hmm. caught up in something that's that external cultural pressure. You know, it could wake us up to the fact that we need to go sit on the bank of ourselves, as we've talked about for a little while, to see to see what actually is needed. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, Juliet. I, I too, have really gone against the culture and what's expected of me most of my adult life. What I can say is <laughs> I've kind of hidden it from the world. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I can put I mean, a trouser suit on when I need to, yeah. <laughs> the people close to me know. But, you know, when I step out into the world, I kind of look pretty normal. Uh, because I was afraid, I was afraid, you know, to for people to see that I was doing something really different than the rest of the world was doing in my life. And and I felt a lot of shame about it, too. There were, there were so many years that I didn't feel like it was okay, the direction I excuse me, the direction I was going in. And it's only really been in the last 10 years that I can see, oh my gosh, it was actually exactly the path I needed to take. And while it was, you know, a lot of the messiness of the path I took have taken um, was in part because I didn't um, validate it. I didn't affirm it. I, I had so much shame and judgment about it. When in reality, it was exactly how I was supposed to move through the world in a very different way. And now I, it's more, it's easier for me to speak about it in the world. So I have a lot of um, respect for people who, who do it, knowing that it's messy, knowing that it's scary, knowing that it's painful, knowing that um, swimming against the cultural norms is, is, is it's scary. It's, it's, um, it's a bit unnerving. It, it takes a lot of courage and I want our listeners to know that uh, I feel your pain and it's okay. It's okay for you to march to, the, to, to your own um, rhythm, to your own drum that's different from those around you. It's okay. And in fact, I, I would say that the world needs this because as you said, Juliet, we all know whether consciously or unconsciously that this particular culture is really unhealthy and toxic and we need people to show up and 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 march to their own drum i want you to bring it home for us uh juliet because believe it or not our time uh, this is flown our time is is almost up yeah i think it's just an invitation to notice um that last thing you said carla of the 
the exhaustion that comes in when we when we're trying to sort of live one way but we we we're hiding or we're fearing or we're and just to just to get curious like neutrally just to observe you know what what happens and could you could you drop the the conflict and what would happen if you did what would come in if you did yeah yeah. So, yeah. That is really interesting. I, I, I do see that when I drop all of that angst, I just have a lot more ease and flow. And I also have to say that that I I pick it all back up routinely. You know, it's kind of it's a it's a practice to just keep just keep unclasping, to keep letting go, to keep sitting on the bank of myself again and again and again. And then the next minute I'm in that pond churning up that water, you know, and then I have to go, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. And it's time to set, sit back down on the bank of myself to let things settle a little bit. <clears throat> That's beautiful. And it strikes me that the more we do that, we're not just bringing ease and flow for ourselves, back to what you were saying with your clients, that you you're modeling we're modeling that for others and in, in this time I think particularly for younger people um it's very powerful even without words to be in the presence of someone who's just utterly themselves and happy to be so yeah yeah we all know when we're in the presence of someone like that because mm. we do I, I believe that that often when we're in the presence of someone like that our, our nervous system relaxes some when we're around those kind of people and, and and we have a lot of respect for those people often. <clears throat> thank you, Juliet, and thank you, listeners. Thank you. You've been listening to the Riffing on Realness podcast with Carla Royal and Juliet Fay. If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and share with a friend. We would truly appreciate it if you'd rate and review this podcast, which will help others find us. You can visit me, Carla, at CarlaRoyal.com. I am a mindset and performance coach working with high-achieving, high-performance entrepreneurs and business owners who are quietly dealing with too much mental chatter and anxiety. Juliet loves freedom of mind, which she explores and shares through poetry and conversations. Find her at soulcare.org. That's soulcare, S-O-L-C-A-R-E.org. We'll see you next time on Riffing on Realness. Mm-hmm.